It's great to hear all of you singing and lifting our voices to praise our great God and King. And I do wish to welcome, as, as uh, Paul Billa did, welcome each and every one of you this morning to our worship service in the name of Christ our Savior. The amazing thing of what's happening outside is not the gathering of snow. The amazing thing is, is each snowflake that gently falls to the earth is different than the one that preceded it and is different than the one that will follow it. The wonder and the majesty of our God that He can do that. If He can take a simple few drops of water and turn it into feet of snow. Someone once said, if, if He can make the butt of a firefly light up, what is it that he cannot do? It's amazing. Amazing. This morning I want to read for you a passage that we will be focusing on in Mark chapter 2. Mark's Gospel chapter 2. It is my intent this morning to highlight not only the context of the passage, but to remind us of both the traditional interpretation, but I want to introduce to you another level of thought in this passage. But Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees, or you may have in your translation, the disciples of the Pharisees, were fasting. People came and asked Jesus, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old garment and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the whole wine is lost as well as the skins. No new wine is put into fresh wineskins. The familiarity of the passage, Lord, draws our attention to you. The parables that you share in this passage have a clarity of thought and the purpose of instruction. We need that instruction this morning. I ask, O Lord, that your Spirit will teach us things, teach us what this passage may very well hold for us, in that we would become even more and more in love with you. We're grateful for this day and the 
allowing us to gather together, whether here in this building, throughout the building, or whether we gather at home. I'm thankful, Lord, that you're here. I'm thankful that you are every place that we go. And I'm thankful that you are the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of your kingdom, there will be no end. Lord, I lift up to you the the group that will be traveling home, our junior hires and the youth ministry. I pray, God, that what they have been exposed to you through the speaker, through the different events that were taking place this past weekend, I pray that that will infect their lives for the kingdom of God. May they come back rejuvenated, and I'm sure tired, but may they come back rejuvenated and excited and willing to share, Lord, the things that you have taught them. As they travel home today, we thank you, God, that you will protect them by your will and for your glory. Give to them the safety on the roads. Allow them, Lord, to rejoice in your goodness. And as parents wait for them to return today, I pray, God, that their hearts, too, will be excited to hear what their teenagers will be willing to share. There are many in our congregation, too, Lord, that right now are experiencing different levels, different events of illness. Thank you for the continued healing of our good friend Bill Troutman, Sr. I pray, Lord, that his arm and his spirits would be continually healed by your presence. We rejoice with him and Kathy that it wasn't worse than what it was. And through these months ahead of rehabilitation and healing, I pray, O oh God, that you will soothe them. Soothe them with your presence and give to them, Lord, your strength as they wait upon you for a full recovery and healing. For Paul Ramberger and for John Adams and even Jonathan Foote, Lord God, these individuals are engaged in a battle of cancer. And I pray, Lord, Lord, your hand upon them that as they seek your will in their lives, I pray, O oh God, that you would strengthen them and give them, O oh Lord, the peace that passes all understanding. A peace that they can trust in You. For whatever the outcome may be, they can trust in You. And I pray, God, for their spouses, that as they stand by, the family members as they stand by, Lord God, I pray that they too would draw their strength from You. May they be renewed 
and the full knowing and understanding that, Lord God, you are in control. And they too can trust you. And pray for those two, Lord, who through the past few months who have come in contact with the, the COVID virus and some have recovered, some are still in recovery. I ask, Lord, that you would strengthen them. Then, Lord, I can't help but pray for our country. It doesn't take long for us as we are exposed to headlines of news that we can almost declare that it doesn't look very good. But Lord, you have a plan. A plan that I'm sure as many like me don't fully understand yet, but we understand that your plan is holy and right and just. We ask, O oh God, that you would minister to our president and vice president and their cabinets. It doesn't seem to appear that they may very well be on the same wavelength as what we would like to see, but Lord God, that doesn't mean that they're out of your touch. You can revive them as you can this whole nation. But I pray, God, that we as a nation would remember what Your Word has to say when it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and pray, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. Yes, and even forgive our sin. So God, I pray for our country and the very leaders that we have. Lord, I pray that you would awaken them to the truth of your scriptures. I pray for our servicemen and service ladies all over the world, wherever they are. They are ministering on behalf of the country from whom they have taken the oath. And I pray, Lord, your blessing on them and protection on them. Please allow, O oh Lord, your word to be that precious to us this morning that we would be willing to drink of it as a parched plant in the midst of a summer sun. May we hunger and thirst after righteousness. And may the plain truth of this text become clear and solidifying to our souls. And I'll praise you and thank you in your name. Amen. Chapter 2 of Mark, chapter 9 of Matthew, and chapter 5 of Luke have something in common. They reflect the exact same accounts. Each one of those books and each one of those chapters 
They, they reflect the exact same accounts as what we've been looking at. They're called the synoptic gospels. Synoptic meaning like they share many of the same stories, though Mark's book, his letter is the shortest. Matthew and Luke will embellish upon certain events in the life of Jesus, but virtually they speak of the same accounts in the life of Christ. In chapter 2 of Mark, all the way through the beginning of chapter 3, Jesus has five confrontations with individuals. Most of them are religious leaders. The first confrontation we remember a few weeks ago was based upon the question, who but God can forgive sin? And Jesus in His glory and wonder proves that He is God because not only did He say, Son, your sins are forgiven you, but then He said, take up your bed and go home. Walk. The second account, as we have seen, is Jesus calls someone to be a disciple whom would be considered to be one of the least, if not one of the last ones, to be considered for such the high calling. He was a tax collector. His name is Levi. Matthew calls him Matthew. Because he is the author of that particular treatise. And yet the question still arises is, why do you eat with publicans and sinners. And Jesus' response was, well, that's the reason I came, paraphrasing it. I didn't come to call the, the healthy to be healed. I've come to save those who are sick, who are lost. This morning's passage is not much different. In fact, in many cases, it is a continuation because the scene hasn't changed. They're still at the feast. You might remember Levi called his buddies to come and have dinner. He hosted a great dinner where Jesus and his disciples were invited to come. And they were there and also others followed along Namingly, religious leaders. You'll notice that throughout the life of Jesus, he didn't go that far if there wasn't individuals following him. There are a few times in his ministry where he would go to the hillside to be alone with he and the Father and pray and, and deal with that. But most of his earthly ministry was spent with people following him. Some of them were there because of amazement of what Jesus could do. Some were there were enlightened because of what Jesus had to say. But some were there for the purpose of seeing if they can't and somehow in some way trip him up. 
they're still at the house of Levi. And the question arises in verse 18, where it says, how come your disciples aren't doing the same thing as John's and the Pharisees' disciples? How come they're not fasting? That might be a difficult question when Jesus' disciples have a mouthful of food at the moment that the question is asked because they are at this party celebrating with Jesus. There was a woman who lived out in the backwoods all of her life, and she wanted electricity, but electricity was never taken out to her until a number of years that was made possible. And they ran wires to her house and set her up for electricity, and she was happy. But as the months went by, they recognized that she only used one unit of electricity. Wondering if there was a problem with what was just established, the, the head of that particular company sent out a representative. The representative went up to the woman's door and knocked on it and introduced himself as an agent for the electrical company and asked the question, ma'am, are do you have electricity? Oh, yes, yes. Are you using it? Most assuredly. Well, we're noticing a problem that you've only, over these past few months, only used one unit. Can you tell us how is it that you're using your electricity? She says, no problem, sir. Well, you know that every night... Just before it gets dark, I turn my lights on in order that I might light my kerosene lamp. Then I turn it off. Now that might be humorous to you, but there's a, a real live account that I think touches on this passage. The Pharisees and maybe even in the church today, we miss out on the real power that there is in Jesus Christ. The Pharisees, we know, are individuals who are keepers of the law. They make sure that it is followed to every dotting of the I or crossing of the T. And if you don't do it their way, then you're wrong. Have you ever met anybody like that? The resounding statement in the church is, well, we've never done it that way. I can see you smiling. Well, that's not a new statement. Thus, I drew from that the title of today's message, Training Old Dogs. You say, but pastor, you got that all wrong. It's, it should be, you can't train an old dog to new tricks. It just depends on what bait you're using. 
Sometimes we allow ourselves to be lulled to sleep. Proverbially, maybe turning the light switch on in time enough to light our kerosene lamp in order to accomplish our desires. Instead of really plugging into the real power of God. So the question is on the table, why do not why don't your disciples, Jesus, do the same thing as the disciples of John and the Pharisees? Why aren't they fasting? I don't totally believe that this passage deals with that particular thought into its extent. In other words, this isn't one of the strong passages you go to when you're trying to learn the discipline of fasting. So I don't know if that in particularly is the foundation of their question. They just want to know why is it that your disciples don't do the same thing that we do? When you do your study of fasting, you find it interesting that most of the passages that speak on fasting have to do with the Old Testament. Let me give you a definition of what fasting is. It is the act of total or partial abstinence from food for a limited period of time, usually undertaken for moral or religious means. During the time of atonement, the Day of Atonement, the nation of Israel would have fasted. They would have fasted because the Day of Atonement, obviously, was a reminder of the time of coming before God as a nation, and then the high priest would offer a sacrifice for the atonement of the sins of a nation. In that sense, then, as is described for us in, in Leviticus chapter 16, it was a time of recollection and sorrow, a time of repentance, a time of, if you will, to get really godly. There were other times in the Scriptures where there were other events or times of fasting. In fact, there's really five of them. Four of them are described for us in the book of Zechariah, chapter 7, and also in chapter 8. Four periods of time when the nation of Israel was supposed to fast. And then there's one that's established in the, the book of Esther. It is presently viewed today that there's a fasting of day of when God spared the nation of Israel from the sword of the king. But what had happened over time is that the Pharisees began to fast on two days of every week. Monday and Thursday. The reason being because on Thursday, it was a fast because they realized that that was the day that Moses went to the top of Mount Sinai to meet with God. It was a time of when he got 
the law, the Ten Commandments, and brought them down. And that's why they also fasted on Monday. Because Monday was the day that Moses came down off of the mountain. But Jesus warned people concerning the fasting of the religious leaders. He told them in so many words in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6, where he said, be careful. Don't fast as the religious leaders do, who come out with saddened faces, walking the streets. He said, they have their reward. So what was happening is that the Pharisees, in this particular passage, were asking Jesus, why is it that your disciples don't do what we do? The first one is not difficult to understand because Jesus highlights the fact that it's a wedding. It's a party. When the bridegroom shows up at the party, it's time of celebration. It's time of, of eating. It's time that you go to the food line and you have the guy cut you off a big piece of prime rib and slap that on your plate. Jesus said, but I hope you caught it. Jesus said, but there's going to be a day when the bridegroom leaves. In the Gospel of Mark, that is the very first instance when Jesus refers to himself dying on the cross. And he says, and when I'm gone, then my disciples will fast in sorrow and in anticipation. But then he gives two more parables. Let me give you the traditional view, then I'll spend the remaining 25 minutes on the different meaning. The traditional view is that the, the, the new piece of cloth being sewn on the old piece of pants or the new wine being poured in old wineskins, they're incompatible. They don't belong together. They'll cause problems. Jesus lists the problems when he says that the old pants are going to rip more because the new patch has not yet shrunk. And it will cause it to be, the patch will be unavailable. It won't do its job. It will create more problems. And the new wine which has not yet fully fermented, you put that in an old wineskin, throughout the fermentation process, that will cause the old wineskin to explode. And then you lose everything. The traditional meaning goes something like this. You can't mix grace and law. It's impossible. The Pharisees are looking at it from a picture of law. They're the keepers of the law, and so they would 
established for themselves rules and regulations that have to be kept in order to produce righteousness. And Jesus is telling them that their old ways and his way of grace just can't mix. Now before we leave that, I I must tell you that the law of God, though it is old, is still not ineffective. When it does say, you shall have no other gods before me, that's a good thing to practice. When it says, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, those are good things that we should practice. Just because God's law, the old covenant, as the writer of Hebrews says, is weak in that it cannot produce righteousness, doesn't mean that it's not valuable. But when that supersedes God's grace, now we have a problem. Because the Pharisees believe that in order for God to forgive you of your sin, there is a level of righteousness that you must first attain. When I've had the privilege of witnessing the people, they tell me that, yes, I know I need the Savior, but I have to do this in my life before I can trust Jesus. It's the same mentality. It's the same awkwardness, if you will. That's not what grace is. Law tells us that we don't drink or chew or hang out with those who do. But grace says, don't be affected by sinners. Go and affect them with grace. Huge difference. And so, yes, law and grace cannot coincide. But there's another facet that I want to draw your attention to. At least I want to present it so that you can think about it. And to understand what I mean, you need to turn back to Luke chapter 5. Because Luke includes a statement that Mark does not have. Luke chapter 5, in particular, verse 33 to 36. In fact, let's turn to verse 36. Luke chapter 5, verse 36. So Jesus also told them a parable, and we know what these are. No one tears a patch from an old garment and puts it on, or a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will the tear be new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. 
And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. It will spill, and the skins will be ruined. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. Now, this is the phrase. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants new. Because he says... The old is better. Don't quickly read beyond that. That's one of those places that you sit back in your chair as I did this week and scratch my head and say, what is this about? And so I did research. And I came across the Messianic Jew from their viewpoint of what does this passage refer to. It was refreshing. I never would have considered it. It is not against any biblical teaching. It's it's not in in and of itself heretical. But an interesting thought process, because if we keep the thought in our minds that Jesus isn't talking here about cloth, and wine. He's answering the question, why don't your disciples fast like we do? What's interesting is when you look at Mark chapter 1, you'll see the first instance that Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee And he calls James, Peter, John, and Andrew in verse 16 to come follow me. And they drop their nets and they go and follow after Jesus. In Mark's Gospel chapter 2, in verse 13, he says to Levi, follow me. And Levi follows him. Do you realize that in Scripture... Those are the only five instances where we know in particular how Jesus called his disciples. Later on, in both Mark and Matthew and Luke, Jesus goes to a high mountain and a group follows him, and out of that group, Jesus says, You twelve will be with me. You're my disciples. I'll make you apostles. Only Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and Levi were given in Scripture of where Jesus went up to them and said, follow me. That's all we're told. But what is interesting in them is this. What type of people were they? They were not part of the pharisaical school of discipleship. Up to the age of 13, all Jewish boys needed to learn the Scriptures, and they would have gone through their celebration called Bar Mitzvah to become an adult, a young adult. But when they got to that place, then only the Smart ones got to go on to become engaged with the Pharisees. 
James, Peter, John, and Andrew were fishermen. They wouldn't have gotten to the first grade of the school of pharisaical law understanding. Levi, he had never even gotten an invitation. He's a low-life tax collector. With that in mind, now, as we come to Luke chapter 5, all of a sudden now that last phrase seems to come about. For it says, again, no one after drinking the old wine wants new. Because they say the old wine is better. That's the Greek way of saying you can't teach an old dog new tricks. They're too ingrained in their habitual teaching and interpretation of law for them to understand what Jesus was all apart, what all about. Thus, Jesus You can't forgive sin, only God can. You can't eat with sinners and publicans because we need to separate ourselves from them. And you at least should be fasting like we do. What we see here is Jesus protecting his disciples. He takes those who have not been ingrained and begins to teach them that which is new. It reminds me of a story of a, of a welder who has a welding business in Minnesota who made the statement that he would rather go into a bar and take a drunk who has never held a welding torch and take him home, sober him up, and teach him how to weld than to hire someone who thinks they know how to weld. Oh, now you catch what Jesus is teaching here. Pharisees, My disciples are going to be taught new things that you're not going to like. Let me prove to what Jesus is talking about here. And when you go to Acts chapter 4, and we visited that passage a few weeks ago, if not a month ago, where Jesus, his two disciples, James and Pete, they tell a man who's begging at Solomon's porch to silver and gold we don't have, but all that we have we give you, stand up and walk. Then they go into the temple together, and then after the worship service, Peter and James are teaching again in Solomon's court, and the Pharisees don't like it. They get arrested. And as the religious leaders are questioning Peter and James, 
they realize two things. Number one, these are uneducated people. But we realize that they've been with Jesus. In this passage, Jesus reminds us, dear people, of this. In order to really become his disciple, we must be willing to lose everything that we think we know about him in order to be engaged by him that he reveals himself so that we may know him. In other words, you can teach old dogs new tricks. You just need to use different bait. Forget the dry, dusty bones that you reward your dog with and you start giving him a piece of fresh ham, oh, you can teach him new stuff. Because he'll like that. I'm not saying that Jesus teaches us with new pieces of ham. But he definitely wants us to lose old ways of thought. In other words, yes, Jesus does forgive sin. Can I get an amen? Yes, I am glad that Jesus eats and drinks with publicans and sinners of whom I am the greatest. And I'm thankful that he calls individuals not based upon what they know, but based upon what God wants them to know. And yes, we may not march according to the religious realm of this world, but Jesus hasn't called us to do that. He's called us because we know the bridegroom. And there's going to be a party that we can rejoice in. The third confrontation didn't end well because the text is silent and you kind of wonder if maybe the Pharisees walked away scratching their head and saying, what was that about? But aren't you glad that old dogs can be trained? That's me and it's you. Let's pray. Thank you, our Lord and Savior, for your unbounding grace that is not fettered by rules and regulations. Grace is the fuel whereby we understand it and it ignites us to the desire to know you more. And so, Lord God, I pray that that would be the, the prayer of our lives. That our righteousness is not determined by what we do. Our righteousness is determined 
by who we know. And I thank you, O Lord God, that you have made yourself known unto us. May we long in our hearts to rejoice and to be fed from your word and to be witnesses for you, that people you can very well look at us and say we're not too educated in the world system, which I'm thankful for. But they can see that we spent time with you. May that be our passion. And may that be our goal. For it's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.